Live from Casa de Monte Cristo with Selena Marcus. It's smoking section. All right, here we are. We have a special edition tonight. Smoking section podcast here at This Music Nashville. Yes. Brought to you by uh, Casa de Monte Cristo. Okay. Okay, because they got some great cigars here from them we'll talk about later on. Yeah. Um, but we have a guest here who I look up to. Agreed. He, I, I, I have heard nothing but good shit about this guest. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we got here Mr. Rusty Gaston. All right. Yes. Thank he, you guys for having me. He is. He is. It's uh, good to be here in the smoking section. Yeah. <laughs> this is the smoking section. Thanks, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Ben. So, what's been going on? How you been, man? Man, fantastic. I can't complain. Just yeah. covered in blessings. Nice. There's that feeling again. So we just talked about that with Brinley. What, Every with time blessings? when someone says something about blessings, I just get a feeling. Yes. Like just like it's just such positivity. It, I almost feel like the Holy Ghost is coming over you, I think you, that's man. what it is, actually. I'm not going to lie. Man, he's all over me. I ain't going to lie to I, you. I, I, <laughs> Every day. That makes two of us. Covers us and what we've got. Oh, man. man. we got to be thankful. <sighs> oh, we, we got another preacher. We got preacher. another preacher. Because yeah. if you can't be thankful, you can't move forward. You, you, you're, you're blocking your blessings if you ain't thankful. Amen. Every yeah. single day. Mm. Yes. This is going to be a good one already. I already know. I'm feeling good. <laughs> so, um, so... So, so I, I've heard your story many a times, even straight down to hearing that Rusty Gaston used to work as a performer at Six Flags. Yeah. What? Six Flags over Texas. Yes. Yes. I, I didn't know that. I did my research. You had to do some research to find that out. Yeah. That's, not pub- that's not real public that's information. Not- <laughs> now, now, wait a minute, wait a minute. Now, as a performer, what did you do? Were you a singer? Did you dance? Did you like... All the above. Okay. What kind of songs did you sing? Some jingles? Man, we'll get to that in a second. But yeah, all again, all of the above. Yeah, no joke. The first show I was uh, a performer in at Six Flags Over Texas was called Pure Country. It was a tribute to the, the soundtrack of the movie Pure Country. So it was it was all songs from that soundtrack. So you sang some George Strait. You got it. I've even got a Polaroid picture of me somewhere in the white rhinestone jacket that George Strait wore in the movie. It says Dusty across the back. I need for you to post that on Instagram. Yeah. <laughs> I need to see that picture. Yeah, I can find that. I need, yeah, yeah. I need to be posted on Instagram. I need to see this. Especially I just saw some pictures, by the way, that I'm going to show you. Yeah. Of Dwayne here with some hair. <laughs> <laughs> I wish you could find some of me with hair. Okay, now, you got some. You got some up there. Yeah, but man, like I found those pictures. My son actually found those pictures. Uh, he's two. I don't know how he found them pictures, and he pulled them out. He's like, "Daddy," like question mark. And I was just like, "Dude, I know, I know." Father time was not good to me. It, it happened at an early age. I just took a clippers and just put it to my head one night and went to sleep and woke up. And I was like, well, I got to shave it all off now. Man, it's done. It's, I contemplate it every day. I'm just waiting to, waiting to become man enough to shave it all off. <laughs> so you got, so let's talk about briefly on how you got into the publishing world. You started out, obviously you got the Six Flags and then you came and you went to Belmont. Yeah, man, but it's a little bit before that, you know. Really? 
Okay. I was very lucky. I, I've realized the older I get that uh, I had some real defining moments in my life, and uh, that that in itself is a true blessing. I've noticed that so many people don't necessarily get that. You know, when I was little, I grew up uh, in East Texas, and I spent all my time at, you know, the record store. I'd go to the mall. If, if, if my family went to the mall, man, I would go straight to Sam Goody. Or I would just want to go to Walmart to sit in the CD section or go to Best Buy just to spend hours walking up and down the aisles looking at records. I would just go to record stores, and I would spend countless hours in my room just listening to cassettes, listening to records, listening to CDs and reading all the liner notes and spending time just staring at the speakers and just obsessing over all my favorite music, you know. And uh, my father at one point, he told me, he said, for everything there is in this world, somebody has a job doing it, whether it is rolling these cigars, whether it's making this table we're sitting at, you know, whether it's cooking the food you eat and, uh, I somehow pieced together, well, if everybody has a job doing something, the one thing I'm good at is the songs that always become my favorites on these albums. They're the songs that eventually become popular. I didn't know those were called singles. I didn't know what that was. Just from an early age, I recognized that the songs I was always attracted to were the songs that eventually became popular. And man, I remember I was in uh, middle school. I was in fifth grade in Wiley, Texas. And I remember I was in the, the locker room of gym class. And man, there was a bench. And I, I mean, I can see it right now. I was standing on that bench and I was looking down on a group of my friends and they were singing a song by the Beastie Boys. And I remember specifically, like I had this first defining moment where it just hit me. And I, I thought to myself, why are you guys just now singing this? I played this for y'all last school year before we left for break. And, you know, I have no idea why that moment stuck with me, but God made it stick with me to make it a defining moment to say, like, look, this is part of your path. And so... I went to high school and I grew up in a little town called Van, Texas that was a thousand people. You know, I didn't know anything about the music business. I didn't know there was one. I didn't know how to get there. Nobody in my family was in it. I'd never met anybody in the music business. Um, and so because of that, I was in choir. I was in drama, things like that, just as a, like truly as a way to get my foot in the door of the music business. But still not even knowing what that meant, but I, but I knew I had this calling that that was it. Yeah, this is, this is a pause section for relighting the cigar. Brought to you by Casa de Monte Cristo. Yes, it is. Live at This Music Nashville. Yeah. Y'all hear that click, click, click? That's him lighting that cigar. Don't, don't inhale. Don't inhale. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, man, like I, I grew up in Van, Texas. This is a small town, and I was in choir and drama. Man, my senior year in high school, uh, I ended up on a whim. I went with some friends of mine who were already in college, and they were going to audition for performer jobs at Six Flags. And so I just asked my mom, could I go with them? This was two hours away from my house, and for whatever reason, she said yes. And so I just grabbed my guitar and went. And 
lo and behold, like I end up getting cast and getting a job and none of my other friends did. So they ended up at my high school. They let me leave a few months early and I moved two hours away so I could perform at Six Flags. And man, it was the time of my life. I played guitar, I sang, I danced, had a big time, ended up going to college in Fort Worth so I could continue doing that. And uh, man, around that time, I saw an interview on TNN of Trisha Yearwood. And she said that she went to Belmont University and that she interned at a record label. So I literally asked a friend of mine, like, man, have you ever heard of the word intern? Like, what, is, what does that even mean? And he said, oh, man, that's you where you work for free to get experience. And I said, man, where do you, I'll do that in a second. Like, where do you sign up to do that? I've never even heard of that. So I cold called the production company of the, the show I was in at Six Flags. And right around this time, I was in a, a big show in their main theater called the Southern Palace, and we performed for more people than uh, most new artists play for all year long. We performed six days a week for thousands of, of people, and it was in a big multi-million dollar rigged show with video and projections and a live band, all kinds of stuff. But, you know, it was a great experience, but I remember I had a second defining moment. I remember where I was standing the costume I was wearing, what the audience looked like. I can see the stage when it just hit me. It's like, man, I have no interest in doing this. How do I get to the music business? I'm, I'm only doing this as a way to get there. And I knew that this production company, somebody went into an office somewhere and said, hey, I've got an idea for this show. And some folks went into a room and they spoke words and some paperwork was exchanged. And somehow this, this live production show came to life. Well, I was interested in like, what were the words spoken in that meeting? Like, what did the paperwork look like? And so I, that's when I cold called that production company that still exists today. It's called Wow Entertainment in Dallas. And, uh, they let me intern there, and it was so wonderful. The guy that owns it was has become a friend, was a great mentor to me, still is. His name's Mark Brimer. He's the number one print arranger in the nation for Hal Leonard Music Publishing. So, like, for instance, if you've ever been in choir or show choir or church choir, this guy arranges the music into choral arrangements where choirs can sing it. So if you've ever been in a choir, you have sung music arranged by this guy. Mark I directed Brimer. a choir. You did? Where at? In Philadelphia. I, w I was kind of like the uh, the Hezekiah Walker of my yes. time. <laughs> I BS you not. <laughs> and you did that, and I was in the choir singing. Uh, you were saying I was singing. Yeah. I was I was director. It's and it's great because um, it's amazing that I love how you bought the church thing because. A lot of music, a lot of people realize, a lot of music starts in the church. Without a doubt. Mm -hmm. Everything that you learn about music, it starts because your parents took you to church and yep. you listened to hymns. And yeah. So I love how we have someone here today who is just, I can feel it already, Holy Ghost filled. Without a doubt. <laughs> My grandmother, she would you know, take me to church, but I can still just hear her. Standing in the kitchen, singing mm -hmm. hymns. Mm -hmm. Hymns were the only songs she knew. Mm -hmm. Before I could go out and play, 
we would sit on her porch and we would shell peas. And man, mm-hmm. I can hear shell the peas. peas. Oh yeah, I can hear them hitting the side of the plastic bowl. All right, so and she would make me memorize things like John three sixteen and memorize mm. uh, hymns and sing them with her before we c- I could go out and play. I, I don't know if I'm more impressed that your grandma was teaching you how to do these hymns and memorize because my grandma did the same thing. She still does it. Right. And she'll probably hear this podcast and give me give her a shout out. Hi, Grandma. God bless Grandma. God bless Grandma. <laughs> um, but the, shell, the, the, the shelling peas, if that ain't country, I don't know what the hell is. <laughs> yeah, I, I've, I've never... Uh, <laughs> Nah, I I've never shelled peas. You from Nashville? You shell peas? I man, I'm from Nashville. You know what? I never shelled peas. You know, I would I would get into the turnip greens and stuff like that, but I never shelled any yeah. peas before. I just found, he, don't, peas. he don't like broccoli, so he can't go right. Garland, there. Texas. <laughs> we we shelled peas. God, you shell peas. So we got a backstory now. Now everybody knows why this guy is who he is today because he. If you ever get a chance to meet Rusty Gaston, Rusty Gaston is a very humble and successful guy i think that's why i i love rusty gaston so much you, you know what like w- when i was at the label and everything i when i started out, i was working in the tape room and rusty used to always come in and see renee and them and he would always just stop and just talk to me and a lot of people always just bypass me you know it's like oh he's just a tape guy you know what I'm saying about you will always stop and conversate with me and talk to me about something and do people not do that? No, no man. People, I got, don't, people don't tell me what the tape room. Come on. They don't talk to the tape copy guy. <laughs> they don't talk to people in the mail room. Get out of there. Come on. They just keep walking. Come on. You will always stop and just have conversations with me. And you, the certain things you would say, it will always just stick with me. So I appreciate that, man. Just oh, you man, taking your time. I appreciate you saying that. Thank yeah. You. It's funny. Um, so you met him in the tape room. Yeah. So I met Rusty Five Whiskey Patricks. It gets a bit rowdy. It turns up. It gets a bit rowdy. <laughs> um, but in a good way. While everyone's getting rowdy, I'm sitting next to Rusty. <laughs> Forgetting that Rusty is still betting. Because Rusty is sitting there so sitting back just quiet. Not even saying a word. He had that poker face going on. Not even saying a word. <laughs> I don't even know if you won that night. <laughs> I did not. Oh. <laughs> I had to leave before got <laughs> <laughs> Not even saying a word, but I said, I'm like, oh, okay. I'm like, Rusty, sit there. Some guy pulled some bullshit He, on the he river. did. He did. He <laughs> sure did. <laughs> For those of you who don't know, he runs This Music Nashville. Partners, Partners, myself and Tim Nichols and Connie Harrington are the owners of This Music. <sighs> We're going to talk about some some writers you have when you're... When you're on your roster here, because let's do it. Because super proud of every one of them. Humbled. Yes, so lucky to get to represent each and every one of them. Oh my god! So this is this is the best part is that because like you said, this is a special edition. We're not doing it at Casa de Monte Cristo tonight. We're actually doing it in this music's Nashville office tonight, and you'll see in the pictures for Instagram the amount of plaques. That are in this building. Well, you know what? There's no walls. It's There's no wall. It's just plaques. <laughs> it's almost as if they built this entire building out of plaques. Out of plaques. <laughs> Except there's, for the stairwell. There's still room for more. There's still room for more in the stairwell. But I want to talk to you about one particular artist slash writer. And that's Emily Wiseman. Oh, yeah. Mm. I, so when you saw it, because this, this, this is a girl 
that which I hope we get on 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 the show so everybody can see how wonderful a person she is. This is a girl who has written for Keith Urban, Tim McGraw, and Faith Hill, and then won a Grammy, a gospel Grammy. Let's put that out there. Okay. She went from having a cut with Keith Urban, a cut with with Tim McGraw and Faith Hill, to having a Grammy with Hillary Scott. And now she has co-written a song with the biggest pop group there is called BTS. On the planet. On the planet. Yeah, Rusty told me a little bit about it tonight when we were sitting there chilling. I was just like, what? And they sang it this morning on Good Morning yeah, America. Yeah, Good Morning Did America. Yeah. yeah, and it's crazy because um, we uh, I was talking to a friend today about that. I'm like, you ever, like, did you watch the Billboard Music Awards? The last two years, when Kelly Clarkson has been hosting, obviously, every time they put BTS on camera or even the background, you hear how loud that place got. The place loses their mind unreal. over that group. It's unreal. Unreal. I didn't know who the hell they were. No idea who the hell they were. Mm-hmm. But so my question is, so, so when you sign an artist or a writer in her case, because she's, she's going to be a pop artist. We'll talk about that later on. But when you sign an artist, are you giving them full creative as far as like you're allowing them to write all types of genres and things like that or how does the publishing company handle that like are they just letting them know you're a country writer state country kind of ordeal yeah i mean for me like specifically with emily wiseband i always take the approach with everybody of you know i want to put them in the place and i want to support them creatively to create at a hundred percent of their ability whatever is real and emotional and god-given to them we want to support that you know and before like as a company as a whole i always ask myself you know i make the decisions based on people first and music second it's got to be the right people because uh music business in general it is not a talent show this is not about the most talented we're not looking for the most talented uh artist or writer because the most talented lots of times they may have a hit but we're not in the business of having a hit we're in the business of having hit after hit after hit after hit and I don't mean any kind of disrespect to anybody on that. Right. But if you think about the biggest stars like that, that we know, like Taylor Swift or Tim McGraw or Kenny Chesney or Garth Brooks, you know, uh, they are the biggest and the best there's ever been. But when you think about it, like you may not classify them as maybe the most talented vocalist. However, they are the absolute best and biggest star and that's that's kind of what I mean by that and uh with Emily I was just taken from the very first moment I ever met her I I met her at an ASCAP songwriter showcase at Belmont University and I was there as the industry judge of this showcase and there were four songwriters playing and then after I ended up you know I was supposed to talk to each of the writers individually Right. Well, Emily, all of her songs, they were just naturally commercial. There was something inside of them that was had this special emotion and some heart. Now, what I didn't know was she was a freshman in college. Now, the other three students 
all of their songs were better than Emily's. They were crafted by the, by the craft. They were put together more appropriately. But what they were missing was this natural commerciality. They were missing this natural heart and emotion. Well, what I didn't know at the time was all those other students, they were all seniors. But Emily was a freshman. She had just started doing this. But when I left there, it's like, this is the girl that's going to write hit songs. But her songs, she, she wasn't developed to the place where her craft was there, but all the specialness was in her songs at that point. And I, I left there saying, I have to keep an eye on her. And then it was two years later that God just brought her back into my life and uh, it all worked. See, that right there is discovering true talent right there, man. Like man. You knew exactly what you were looking for. You knew exactly what you wanted. And you knew that she had that in her. Yep. Like I said, a couple years later, she kind of came back into my life because her sister had, was younger than her and, and attending Belmont then. And her sister needed to interview somebody in the industry for a class. And so her sister, Anna, who's now the vice president of this music, <laughs> she reached yes. out. To, she asked yes. she asked Emily and said, hey, like, don't who's that guy you met in the music business? I need to interview somebody for my class. Like, can I interview that guy? And she cold reached out to me on Facebook. And when she did, I immediately recognized, oh, my gosh, this is the sister of the girl I, I saw in that round. Like, of course, she has to come in here and I got to talk to her. Well, the interesting part was we were at a point of this music where we were just about to start a phase of growth. We were about to I was looking for a new intern. I knew I was going to hire somebody else. And I had been interviewing. Uh, I had interviewed 10 seniors at Belmont to maybe be interns that. The intention would be that would definitely turn into a job. Right. Well, Anna comes in. She interviews me for her class. And, man, this girl just, like, has it. We just hit it off. And at the end of our interview, she said to me, hey, you know, if you ever need any help around here, I'd love to help you. And I said, well, actually, I'm looking for an intern. Why don't you come back and, you know, start interning? Well, she did, and it started going great. And one day I said to her, I said, hey, if I need to fill out some paperwork for school for you to get credit, you know, like let me know. And her face just went pale. And she said, oh, I'm, I'm only a freshman in college, and I, I can't do this for credit. Like I'm, she thought I was going to tell her, oh, well, you can't intern here. I said, no, this is, this is fantastic. You know, like that's the type of person I'm looking for, the person that is out there hustling and working. Well, so then Emily gets reintroduced to my life. And again, now her songs have progressed. And so I said to her, like, hey, um, your sister's interning here. I'm trying to help her develop her career. Let's do the first ever Belmont songwriting internship. And so we set Emily up for a summer internship where we treated her just like every other writer here. And Anna handled the details. And we, we booked her co-writes. And I said to her, like, hey, at the end of the semester, the worst thing that could happen is you're going to make all these relationships from all these rights we set up. Well, at the end of that semester, she had a song that she wrote called uh, You Wasn't That Drunk. And Lady Antebellum ended up, like, recording the song, working it up. 
and uh, but it didn't end up making a record. Well, at that point, it was like, man, this girl has just progressed so incredibly. Signed her to a publishing deal, Emily Wiseband. But at that point, I told Emily, it's like, look, I just support you and your creativity, and we will figure it out. But I told her at the time, I said, hey, if you want to be an artist, I'm not interested in that. You are an unreal songwriter, and whatever it is you want to write, we're going to help you do that. But at the moment, like, I wasn't trying to look for another artist, and we were just focused on her being a writer. And so she came in, and she wrote. She wrote country songs, but she also was a believer and was raised in the church. Well, we had some connections. She started writing some Christian songs. She started writing some pop songs. And then, you know, she got that song she wrote during that internship, it ended up, uh, like I said, not making a Lady Annabellum album, but then uh, Little Big Town worked it up. Well, they it, they didn't end up using it either. And then next thing you know, Josh Abbott and Carly Pierce cut it. It ends up being their single. And even though it wasn't a huge success on the radio, it was a mega success in the streaming world and, and on Pandora and things like that. And that was really one of the first kind of stepping stones for Emily. But again, it was about championing her creativity and it ended up leading to you know right when she graduated college you know her first few months out of college she won a grammy for best christian song and from there it's just gone on and on and on and you know last year she had a big pop hit on camila cabello called oh. consequences oh wow. yeah that's right that's another one I've, yeah Ooh. yeah um She's had lots of singles, and Danielle Bradbury and yeah. Lauren Elena, and uh, she is um, she is a force to killing, be reckoned she's with. She's killing the game. She's smashing. She is killing the game. Um, I can't wait to have her on here. Um, I'm speaking that into existence. Put it in existence. Um, well, we got the guy to make it happen here. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> the guy to make it happen here. I just talked to her the other day too about that. Um, but yeah, now she has uh, signed a record deal say, yeah. with uh, Warner Brothers in Los Angeles, a pop record deal. And the same thing for her. You know, one day I was sitting at uh, Brick Tops restaurant and having lunch, and I, I get a phone call on my phone, and I notice it's a 310 area code. It says Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. Well, I answer it, and it is a just legendary, absolute one of the most amazing songwriter producers ever that I was a mega fan of named Mike Elizondo. And this guy was the protege of Dr. Dre. Oh. So like he wrote and produced in the club for 50 cent, uh, the real slim shady for Eminem worked on all the Dr. Dre projects. And you know, that stuff was popular around my, you know, when I was leaving high school. That's so my youth. Oh, yeah. So things mm -hmm. like The Chronic and Snoop Dogg, you know, even though I grew up in the country and wore a cowboy hat, like I was crazy about that stuff. You know, it spoke to me just like George Strait did. You wore a cowboy hat? Every day. <laughs> you know, you know, wearing hats, you know, they make you. <laughs> well, then I must wore a hat when I was born. <laughs> Apparently, the cause of balding is wearing hats, you know. That would explain the forehead and the bald head for you. Yes. I stopped wearing it because I started getting thin up here, so I stopped wearing hats. Well, you see, I got a hat on right now. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing the uniqueness of every artist or every 
signee, should I say, writer that you have signed, the uniques of their stories. Um, and, but the story where Mike Elizondo called me and he's like, hey, man, I, I hear like you're the guy that works with Emily Wiseman. And he said, hey, I heard this girl on SoundCloud a year ago and I've been looking for her ever since. And he said, does she want to be an artist? And I said, no, she doesn't. Uh, but he said, well, hey, I'm an A&R guy, Warner Brothers. He said, how about we fly her out here and just let me spend a week with her writing? And so we said, yeah, absolutely. So she went out and did that. And, uh, you know, for a year and a half, she went back and forth out there just developing this relationship with wow. Michael Elizondo and writing. Wow. And through that, about a year and a half in, she wrote a song that all of a sudden was the song that defined who and what she was as an artist. And she had always kind of said like, all right, well, maybe I'll make a record if I figure out what it is I want to say. Well, then all of a sudden he helped her figure out what she wanted to say. And then she started expanding on that. And, uh, you know, the rest is going to be history. We're talking, we're a month away from her first song being released and it's going to change the world. I need to get her before her song is released. <laughs> get her quick. I need to get her quick. <laughs> She's going to blow up. So I, I, I'm going back in the story because you talk about how she was a freshman and she was writing commercially and 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 i've been here nine years in nashville and i heard a saying before i met you i heard the saying and my buddy told me he he, he had said he's like that's an awesome saying and i'm like well who told you he goes i can't remember who told me it and he's like i don't know why i can't remember who told me it and then i'm sitting here and rusty says he doesn't want, and this is not this is not like a this is not like a, a dig on Bluebird. He doesn't want anyone who writes a song for Bluebird. He wants someone who writes a song for Bridgestone Arena. Trust me, the Bluebird is the greatest venue of songwriters on the planet, and all I want all of our songs played there. But what I what I mean by that is songs that are going to play to arenas, but also really be appreciated at the Bluebird. That's amazing. I mean, Garth goes back to the Bluebird every once in a blue moon yeah. and plays his songs. But he's Bluebird. a great example of that. Yes. He makes music for Bridgestone Arena, but it yeah. works in the Bluebird. It works in the Bluebird, right. too. What else do you look for in a writer? You know, for me, it's it's about, uh, like, first off, do they have, you know, like I said earlier, we make our decisions based on people first and music second. It's about do they buy into the philosophy that that we do that this is fun and it's hard work but uh it's it's about wanting to make the music that uh touches as many people as you possibly can i also tell them like today let's let's write songs that touch more people than amazing grace because in writing songs all writing songs is is setting human emotion to melody and the thing is is snoop dogg and George Strait sing about the exact same thing. They just use different language to do it. There's only so many human emotions, and music is setting those human emotions to melody. 
an emotion does not mean a ballad. A song like Honky Tonk Badonkadonk, it has a much as much emotion as Live Like You Were Dying does. The emotion is turned to 11 on the dial. It's turned to stun mode because the emotion they're trying to get across is absolutely coming across as powerfully as it can. And those songs... A song like Live Like You Are Dying or Honky Tonk Badonkadonk, they are equally powerful in delivering the emotion they're trying to get across. You see what I'm saying? Good God. Man, you hit that. Like Good I always say, man, God. music, it moves, touch it, inspires people, man. Like, it, doesn't, yeah. it doesn't matter. It That's doesn't. what it's all about. So what are your thoughts? So now we talk about music moving. There's, there's, a, there's a shift right now happening that I, that I see happening. What's your thought about the whole little Nas and and old, and old town Lil Nas X and, and old town road. Are you, do, you, do you are you a fan of that song? I mean, yeah. I mean, I like it because it sounds good, it feels good, and I like it, and it, it makes you you know like it makes you want to roll the windows down and crank it up and listen to it. Like that is a real emotion. That's a real emotion. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's a real emotion. That's that's insane. We, so you, you mentioned live like you were dying. So your partner's here. This music, Tim Nichols. Tim Nichols, who co-wrote live like you were dying, which has a whole different. We'll talk about that another day. Who last year was put into the uh, Songwriters right. Hall of Fame. That's right. He He's was. a Grammy Award winner. God. There's almost you're going to be going to be hard pressed to find someone who has been as consistent of a career for thirty plus years for just year after year after year after year having hit after hit all the way back to the early '80s. Him having cuts on on Keith Whitley or, or uh, Ronnie Millsap, but still today as we sit here right now, he's on brand new records by Jimmy Allen or, or Morgan Wallen or Lindsey L. And, you know, brand new, the hottest young people coming up, he's still getting cuts on every one of those projects. And uh, he is somebody that, uh, you know, it's just legendary what he has accomplished. So take us back to the day that you met Tim Nichols. Where did you meet him? How did you meet him? How, and then how did how did this music come about from your friendship, especially with Connie Harrington? And how did this music and this publishing company come about with everything? Because I'm sure he had a publishing deal beforehand. Yes. Tim Nichols, um, at the time, I was working for another publishing company for a producer named Byron Gallimore, produced Tim McGraw and Faith Hill. And um, we were having great success. And for many years before that, I worked for another great publishing company for a a great mentor, publisher of mine named Jerry Smith. But both of those companies were joint ventures with uh, Warner Chapel. Mm -hmm. And um, both of those companies were really successful. But there were some things about uh, structurally the way they were set up, financially, business speaking, like they weren't really set up to win. And I was at a point in my life and career where I wasn't married, I didn't have a family, where I could really afford to take a gamble on myself. And uh, I had kind of, me and some other friends of mine had talked about starting a publishing company, and we had really put a whole business plan together. And at the same time, I had kind of approached Warner Chapel to say, man, these companies I work for, they're great, we're having big success. Uh, but at the same time, on paper, they, they don't look very successful. Um, and I had had that conversation with Warner Chapel, and they were intrigued. Well, completely separate from that, Tim Nichols, he wrote for Warner Chapel at the time, and his publishing deal was up. 
and he didn't want to just sign another publishing deal. And so uh, he he was trying to figure out what he wanted to do. Uh, his his buddy Craig Wiseman had just started a company called Big Loud, um, and so I think Tim was at a point saying, "Hey, I I want to kind of start some company." And uh, we had a mutual friend named Michael Martin, who's the head of ASCAP membership here in Nashville. Mm -hmm. And Michael Martin is the one that said to Tim Nichols, it's like, hey, if you're going to do this, like, you need to go talk to Rusty Gaston because uh, he's like the creative person you need to do this. Well, Tim and I, before that, we were really just acquaintances. We knew each other, but we really didn't know each other very well. And he had approached me and said, hey, I've kind of thinking about this well i had signed a songwriter at the time named connie harrington and tim and connie had had a bunch of success together well i guess the two of them had already been talking about maybe kind of working on the company together as well well and it, then it just made sense that well connie and i worked together at that point it, it just made sense for the three of us to kind of come together because I kind of already had the basics of a business plan put together, but Tim had really already done the groundwork with Warner Chapel to basically like get it all approved and kind of okayed. And Tim had just written Live Like You Were Dying. Tim McGraw had recorded it, but it was not out yet. And so, but everybody knew it really felt like it was going to be what it became. Smash. Yes. And so... Uh, through, you know, kind of that conversation, that's how the idea of this music came about. Uh, and so we started it in January 1st, 2006, with Tim and Connie being the first two writers and the three of us being partners. And then from day one, I signed a writer named Ben Hayslip. And Ben and I had gone, we had been friends for 10 years beforehand there was an artist that i had signed at the first company i worked with named jeff bates and he he was signed to rca when yeah. Dwayne was over there jeff bates and uh i had first found jeff bates singing at a uh, bar called the hollywood country club in little rock arkansas and i drove out there to see him play and man i just thought this this is a guy's the greatest singer i've ever heard in my life like ever and so i brought him to town to say, hey, come to town. Let me set you up on some co-writes and let's see kind of what happens. Well, the very first co-write I set him up on was with Ben Hayslip and a guy named Gordon Bradbury. And they the first song they wrote was called Long Slow Kisses, which ended up being a big hit for Jeff Bates on RCA when Dwayne worked over there. Love but, that song. So, but so Ben Hayslip and myself, our relationship went back that far. And so he was at a point where he said, hey, man, he said, I moved here years ago to – be a hit songwriter and I've I've written for years but always kind of done it part time but I'm at a point to where uh if I'm ever going to devote just everything to it it's now and if it works out great but if it doesn't I'm going to take my family and move back to Georgia and know that I gave it all I got and so we signed Ben Hayslip from day 1 and uh 4 years later he was the ASCAP songwriter of the year and then the year after that, he was the ASCAP Songwriter of the Year for a second time. And then he wrote the most played song of the year, and then he did that again the year after that. And he he has had an absolute unheard of success streak. I mean, as we sit here we, in this I'm room. We're sitting in his room right yeah, now. Yeah, I mean, in this room, it. he wrote Honey Bee in this room. He wrote When She Says Baby for Jason Aldean in this room. 
he wrote number ones for Luke Bryan in this room and, and Dustin Lynch and Justin Moore and Thomas Rhett and Josh Turner and countless Blake Shelton hits. Jeez. And uh, I love and respect Ben Hayslip so much. Every day it is just amazing. And the thing about Ben Hayslip is, man, just like me, he, he has this fighter mentality that every day he comes in and works to write the very best song written in Nashville. That is the goal. The goal is not to write the very best song he can with maybe this artist. The goal is to write the very best song written in Nashville because an artist, you know, a lot of them are really great songwriters. And even when they are, even when they are great songwriters like Garth Brooks or Toby Keith or Alan Jackson, still their biggest hits are Brad Paisley. Their biggest hits, they didn't write those. Preach. And... You know, for Ben Hayslip, he comes and he sits in this chair I'm in every day with one mission, and that is to write the very best song in Nashville. And every day he wakes up that today is going to be the day. He never gets discouraged. He comes in to kick ass every fucking day. And, man, that's, that's what I want to do for him every day is to kick ass to get his songs where they need to be. And uh, he is really you know, a writer for every other writer to look up to and to uh, appreciate and to strive to be like. You are a person that wow. every right, while is right, you are a person that I believe any songwriter is just hearing this, hearing the way you talk about your roster, hearing the way you talk about Ben Hayslip. You don't really hear that a whole lot from other publishing company. You you don't hear that a whole lot. I mean, you, they they say it to themselves and they keep the mentality and they say it, but they you would never hear them say it out loud. And and to hear you run this publishing company and to say that every songwriter should have a cheerleader like you behind them. Well, man, I'll tell you this. I appreciate. I really appreciate you saying that because. Like, this means a lot to me. Like, man, I moved yeah. here a complete dreamer. Like I said, right. I grew up in a town of a thousand people with nothing but dreams. Right. And I moved here to Nashville on August 17th, 1996. I didn't know one single soul in this town except the guy I was going to intern for. And I'd only had two conversations with him before I moved here. And I left a full scholarship to college. I broke up with my girlfriend. I left all of my family. I'm an only child. I left everything I'd ever known because God told me beyond a shadow of a doubt this is where I was supposed to be. And man, I, I moved here a complete dreamer to make my dreams come true. And every single day, these songwriters that come into this building, man, this is their dreams too. And these songs that they're creating, this is their, these are their children. And, you know, for me, they are my children too. I am as emotionally invested in each one of these songs as they are. And I think that's what makes our relationship so special because it really means something to me. And I'm so appreciative for what they come in here and blood, sweat, and tears out every day. And, you know, Every hit song they have, it makes my dream come true, just like it makes their dream come true. You know, and we, we mentioned Jeff Bates earlier, mm -hmm. and I'll tell you, like, something about that story is that with Jeff, he was a real special talent, and it was real early in my career, and it was something that I really put all my eggs in this one basket, 
and um, we had been working with a label in town and some producers and really getting some stuff going on. And man, we we were right on the cusp where there was a record label talking about they're just about to give him a developmental deal. And I get a call one day. We had just left a label meeting. We were so excited. We we're like, man, it's about to happen. Like all of our dreams are coming true. And I get a phone call myself, and it is a uh, a guitar player. And he said, hey, man, like, do you know where Jeff is? And I said, yeah, man, he's on his way home. He said, hey, I want to let you know uh, the police are there, and they're waiting for him. And he has stolen a trailer full of sound equipment. And the police are there, and they found it, and they're going to arrest him. What? And... Man, I'll never forget, I had to go to the president of Warner Chapel at the time and say, hey, man, you know this artist that I've just, I've spent $90,000 of your money on, um, well, man, he just got arrested and come to find out he had a horrible crystal meth addiction that I had no idea of or no understanding of. And I'll never forget the president of Warner Chapel at the time, his name was Tim Whipperman. He just looked at me and he said, Rusty, he said, there's some reason why God wants you to learn this lesson this early in your career. And he said, hey, man, he said, people deserve and need second chances. He said, let's figure out where he's at in jail. Let's see if we can get him into rehab. Let's see if we can get him moved to a jail where he can serve his jail time and rehab concurrently which we did that, and, uh, you know, we were able to, long story short, Jeff went through rehab, he got out of jail, we were able to get his publishing deal reinstated, and, you know, as time would have it, we ended up getting him a record deal at RCA, and he sold 500,000 records and had some hits, and that was a big success, but for me... He sold that many records? He did. He did. And, but wow. what I what I learned through that is I asked myself, would I mortgage my house for this? And if I can't say yes, I just don't do it because this is personal to me and it really means something. And so like you talking about the writers that are here at this music, I ask myself that on every one of these writers. I, I don't do what I call pieces of business. A piece of business is, hey, like this artist has a record deal, but man, our staff really isn't, you know, passionate about it. Or, man, this writer's got a cut, and it's going to make more money than their advance, but nobody around here like really wants to hang out with them every day. There are other companies that are made for things like that, but for us, man, we're a small family, a boutique, where our company is set up to be, you know, where we want to give every writer 100% attention, but at the same time, we want to be crazy passionate about what they do. And I, I literally say to myself, would I mortgage my house for this? And I asked myself if the only way I could sign this writer is to go to my wife and say, hey, well, I'm going to risk our entire home on this person's talent. If, if I can't say yes to that, I don't do it. And the, the Jeff Bates and going through that process, it taught me to have that level of belief in the people that I work with. And, you know, for every one of these writers, man, I, I have that passion for them. And every one of them doesn't work out. But, you know, even the ones that don't work out, and it work out meaning financially, we still have, every one of them is still a successful relationship. Like I have a philosophy around here of, that I 
preach to everybody is that love plus fun equals success. If you love what you do and you love the people you do it with and you add in a lot of fun, the only possible outcome is success. Mm. It is the equation to live by. Love plus fun equals success. I think I'm going to title this episode Love Plus Fun Equals Success. Man, you know, just hearing the passion that you're talking about your writers and everything, I ain't gonna lie, dude. I wish I was a fucking writer because <laughs> because I would want to sign with you. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Like you, man, just you. You're animated about it. You're passionate about it. Like you, we just said it earlier. You don't hear those kind of things. You know, these songs are their children. We we can't just sign it to sign it. It's like you gotta believe in it and be willing to fight blood sweat and tears to make it happen and i just i can't imagine doing it any other way we have 14 songwriters here uh some of them are artists um, but the majority of them are just day in day out journeyman craftsman songwriters that come in here with absolutely nothing and from scratch god gives them the words and the melodies and the emotion that touches people's lives forever these are songs that are sung at people's weddings songs that are played you know at at graduations songs that you know people fall in love to songs that heal people's hearts songs that heal families you know songs that that uh help people forgive and man, this is so. These songs—they just mean something, man. This is. This should be important. I uh, I'm looking around, um, and I'm looking, and I see Joe Nichols. Give me that girl. Yeah, that was a good one. And I was working in radio when that came out, and I remember when it came out, and the PD—I don't even know they were supposed to play this out loud so everybody can hear it but the pd played it and i'm walking past his office and i walk back i walk back in and i said the pd happened to be someone who got me into the industry and i said uh can you play that again he goes yeah sit down and i'm listening to it and i literally said to him i said who sings that he goes joe nichols i said that's gonna be number one hit he goes, you think so? It's before it was released. Because you think so? I said, that's going to be a hit. Fast forward to when Joe Nichols came in to Philadelphia and came into town and played the song. And I think it had just gone number one. For four weeks. For four weeks. It had just gone number one. And we're sitting up there and he's playing a song and the guy and the PD looks at me and he goes, well, you're right. And you can just see the 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 crowd just swaying along to it, listening to it. And he did it acoustically. Yeah. Swaying along to it, singing every word of the song. And I'm like, I need to go in A&R because I can pick fucking songs with them right. Let's <laughs> <laughs> well, rewind on something. Number one for, for four, four weeks. weeks. For four weeks, that doesn't happen nowadays. It just happened with Luke, with Luke Holmes. I almost said Luke Bryan. But Bryant. it hasn't happened in years. But it hasn't that. happened in years. I think the last one before was actually was a Thomas Red song. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Was Die Happy Man, and that was for six weeks. Yeah. Um, but that nowadays 
it's tough even get number one for I want to say a day, but yeah. <laughs> by midnight closing time, you don't know. You got to wait till midnight to know. If there it's are number, number one. ones that by twelve oh one they are no longer They're number no longer ones. <laughs> We are happy to have those. Too. Exactly. Exactly. God bless those. Oh, man. So I um, we're going to wrap this up here because it's getting a little late here for you. And I know you got to go home back for your kids. But I uh, I told one friend last week we went to uh, we went to Martin's and um, he says you owe him owe him lunch. Maybe. But he's not. He's going to accept if you buy anyway. <laughs> um, his name is Bob Reeves. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And Bob Reese said yeah. to me, you need to get him to do this. And I said, okay. He told me what it was. And I said, I'm going to get him to close the fucking episode with that. You did a speech. I don't know where it was at. And I don't even know if we're going to call it a speech. By the way, what are you smoking? This is a Warhawk. And let me tell you, it's great. It's made by Henry Clay Warhawk. Mm. Casa de Monte Cristo, they suggested it for me because I got to be honest, I'm not a uh, cigar smoker. But you know what? You've done a good is, damn good job with that. This is great. Yeah. This is really good. Yeah. I was literally, I, I don't even know what you just said because I was just thinking like, man, this I could actually smoke this again. <laughs> <laughs> Casa de Monte Cristo, the place to go. It's the place to go. <laughs> the biggest humidor in Nashville. Yeah. Yes. What, what, are you, what are you smoking? Because well, you've had it before, didn't you? I had it before, and I'm going to say it again, man. I'm smoking this acid. I think it's called a roux. Mm. You know? Acid? I thought that was something you just put on your tongue. <laughs> I did that one time when I was 16. <laughs> this is, this is this new a different sh- kind, That's a different kind of acid. Oh, yeah, <laughs> this is that new shit. You know what I'm saying? It's actually rolled up. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm trying to light up here, but. Yeah, what you got, Marcus? I got the. I got, I got the. It's alley- thick. Yeah, it's, it's a thick one. It's yeah. thick. It's a thick one. It's thick. And it's, and it's dark. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Lord have mercy. I got an Alec Bradley Magic Toast. Magic, and it, magic Toast is what it's oh, called. Yeah. Uh, this is actually their new one. So I'm an avid. I smoke Alec Bradley on a regular because they normally come at Casa de Monte Cristo in a four pack. Yeah. And this is not in four pack. I now know why. Uh, because it's just so damn good. But it's also new. They just got it. They said they just got it this morning. Oh damn! Um, so it's 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 really it's really smooth and dark and thick juicy. Um, and juicy. <laughs> I don't I don't know where y'all going with that, but I'm just gonna step out the room. <laughs> I'm just gonna leave. All right. So back to what I was saying. So you did a speech. I think you were like accepting an award or something like that. And he he said, "Get him to do this." So we're gonna close the show by you doing this. This has been an episode brought to you by Casa de Monte Cristo, but live at This Music Nashville. That's right. Yeah, so I'm just soaking up the energy. I'm soaking up all the energy here. Um, when I first went in the dorms in MTSU, my roommate used to hate me because my alarm was Smile by Uncle Cracker. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I tell you, you laugh. You laugh, but I dare you one morning to wake up just listening to that song, and I guarantee you, You'll wake up with such a big ass smile on your face. You know what? I'm just gonna do it for shits and giggles. Just do it for shits and giggles. I promise you, tomorrow morning, you're like, holy shit! If you like songwriters, yeah, you see songwriters play, you have to stop what you're doing. Yeah, go to a show that J.T. Harding is playing at. Oh my God, Mm -hmm. he is the very best. I saw, I saw him, and this is this guy is on the roster, but I saw him and um, Phil. uh, 
Barton. Barton. And the energy those two together, yeah, it's just phenomenal. Yeah, mm-hmm. JT's story is off the chart. Oh, we yeah. gotta get JT on here too. I, I ran to JT after uh, after CRS ASCAP show. He was on a flight. I get to talk to him, but he played the ASCAP show. Cool. And it was, man, you don't want to talk about a songwriter getting a crowd involved. Oh yeah, he'll get him. He'll get him. <laughs> he going. gets everybody involved. Yeah, he's a star. Um, but Bob Reese wanted you to do the um. Think a songwriter. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so we're going to close the show. Follow us on Smoking Section Podcast on Instagram, Smoking X Section on Twitter. Go like our page on Facebook. Yes, please do. Go follow This Music Nashville on, on Instagram. Y'all yes. better. Do that. Do that. Go follow Emily Wiseman. Go follow Domina Hayes. Go follow Rusty Gaston. Go follow JT Harding. Look up. Go on their website and look this at their music. Fucking, com. Yeah. Go go and look at their at, at all of their There's playlist. Good, all the songwriters God. are on there. I feel like every time on Instagram, there's a new post of a story of some kind of. Let's hope so. Yeah. God willing. Yes. Yeah, some yes. kind of new song being released that's one of their rocks. I'm like, are you shitting me? Like, are you guys just ever stop? Man. It's a machine. Let's Make hope it. we don't stop. Let's hope we don't Let's stop. Don't stop. Making noise. Just God. It's phenomenal. So, yeah. So, we're going to close the deal here um, with uh, Thank Songwriter. Man, whatever you do in this town, it all, you know, the NSAI has a, has a saying that says it all begins with a song which is absolutely true, but really it all begins with that song writer. And that if you work at a record label, realize that your job every single day is solely dependent on that songwriter. Thank a songwriter. If you are a booking agent and you book shows and and you somehow make the money to pay your mortgage, there's one reason that happens. Thank a songwriter. If you are a manager that commissions artist shows, well, those shows only get booked because of those hit songs that are written by a songwriter. Thank a songwriter. If you have fallen in love, if you have healed your broken heart, if you have forgiven somebody, if you if you laugh, if you cry, thank a songwriter. Guys, thank you guys so much for having us here. Thank a songwriter for having us here because you guys all work in the music business. And if you do, and every paycheck you get, every time you flip that light switch on at your house and the electricity comes on, thank a songwriter because they paid for it. God bless America.